I'm Gregory Berg. One of the things that ground to a halt almost completely during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic was international travel, and in particular, those exciting and memorable trips taken by college students to places abroad. Certainly for both UW Parkside and Carthage College, such international travel has been all but impossible uh, in the last few months. In honor of things finally beginning to open up slowly but surely, and such trips finally becoming possible once again, I want to replay a conversation which most likely dates from 2001 with two faculty colleagues of mine at Carthage and two students talking about a very, very memorable trip taken to the nation of Greece. Enjoy. And I'm very pleased today to be joined by two of my faculty colleagues at Carthage College, Chris Renault, who is a professor of classics, and Dan Showalter, a professor of religion, and two students from Carthage join us as well. Elizabeth Hack, who is an English major, and uh, Jerry Monson, who is a business administration major. And uh, these four people all participated in what sounds like a fascinating trip to the nation of Greece. And uh, that occurred during January. You may recall two or three weeks ago that we spoke with uh, another Carthage professor, Jim Lochterfeld, and five of the students that accompanied him to India during January. So now it's, the, uh, it's time to uh, turn to this trip, which was really quite different in, in, in a number of respects, partly because it was really a, a trip back in time and a look at uh, some of the... Uh, fascinating facets of ancient Greece, which are still evident today. So anyway, we welcome Chris Renault and Dan Showalter and Elizabeth Hack and Jerry Munson to The Morning Show. Glad you're all here. Glad you found us. Uh, Let's start with the trip and the course, and I understand it's actually the second trip that Carthage has sponsored to Greece. Tell us about the first one, first of all. Well, last year, the trip was entitled Ancient Mystery Religions, and we had roughly the same itinerary. We, we changed the, uh, the order of things a little bit. But the focus was on how religion manifested itself in, in sort of unusual ways in these, these cults that we don't necessarily know a lot about, but that people that were very popular with people in the ancient world and tended to leave behind some very impressive material remains in terms of sanctuaries, votive offerings, these kinds of things. So in a sense, it's sort of like putting together a puzzle, what was going on here and what kind of worship uh, was, was taking place and what were the gods like who were being worshipped. And that, that was pretty much the focus of the first uh, trip uh, last year. Mm-hmm. The second one, in what way was it different? Well, the second one, we decided, we shifted the focus a little bit and we did myth, drama, and religion in ancient Greece. And, uh, and the reason why we called it that is there's really to emphasize the interrelationship between these aspects. We tend to separate them. We see myth as one thing, drama as another, and primarily as forms of entertainment than, of course, religion. But in ancient Greece, they were all interconnected, and hence our visit to the different sites. Mm-hmm. You're talking about archaeological sites, then, I assume. So archaeology is a big part of this experience, right? Definitely. And, and as we're working to build the classics program at Carthage. Both Chris and I have interest in archaeology. Chris has a lot of experience in archaeology. I have a little, and we hope to make that an integral part of what we're doing in classics at Carthage. There, there wasn't any hands-on archaeology with this trip, but pretty much everything we did revolved around archaeological sites or museums, archaeological remains. Wow. Uh, 18 students in all went along, and uh, I'm curious to hear from both of our students joining us today what 
what led you to uh, want to be a part of this. Elizabeth, I suppose for you it's not much of a mystery because you're a classics minor, so this folds nicely into your academic interests, right? Um, yes, I was originally slated to go to Tanzania this semester with a musical ensemble on campus, but um, that didn't work out, so I had great interest in going to Greece and just kind of seeing uh, all the places that I've read about and studied before. Hmm. That must be a profound thrill to see things uh, right there that you've only seen in books or, or heard about or studied. Yeah, it's really fascinating now because I can look at pictures of the Parthenon or other famous sites and I can kind of point on the page and say, oh, well, I sat right here in the theater of Dionysus <laughs> or I stood two feet away from the Parthenon. Wow. Well, Jerry Monson, what was a business administration major doing on a trip like this? Um, well, I've actually had an interest in archaeology for, uh, for quite a while, just since I was a kid. I always used to <clears throat> just get, you know, check out books from the library in elementary school, and this was just an opportunity to go and, and see classical Greece and, and just see kind of just origins and, you know, things that you can't experience here, things that are, you know, thousands of year old artifacts and remains just, you know, in the middle of modern-day cities. It's just really fascinating. Mm -hmm. There you go. Mm -hmm. So let's, uh, let's talk a little about how this, this three-week three -week expedition was, was put together. I mean, did you have particular sites in mind? How did you put together where you were going to go and how long you would be there and so on? Well, we worked with a travel agent in Athens, Dimitri Kakoni, who runs tours in, for a lot of educational institutions. And in fact, when two years ago when we started to put this together, I called a former professor at St. Olaf who had been going to Greece for a number of years, and he referred me to Dimitri. And so Dimitri has a real good sense of what are the sites that are both interesting from an historical perspective and also accessible and uh, fun for students to visit in, in various ways. And then he also has a very good sense of when you go to this site, where do you stay, and how do you uh, how do you set yourself up, and where would you eat, and these kinds of things. So it's it's really he's able to put together a very nice package for us. And then what we wind up doing is fine tuning, suggesting some changes. Now that we've done it twice, of course, we have a good sense of uh, the stamina of the students to go through <laughs> these things. Part of the problem that we always face is the students are paying a lot of money uh, to go on this trip, and so we want it to make it as uh, full of an experience as possible. On the other hand, we're all human, and everybody gets tired and, and wants a break, and so we, we have to try to balance the, the content that we're, that we're wanting to provide with the realistic, uh, the realistic ability of everybody to stay awake and, and uh, stay attentive to things. So, Interesting. Now, is, is the nation of Greece full of these sort of uh, historical sites, or are we talking about a fairly compact region within Greece where, where these kind of things are found? Not at all. Uh, the, the sites that we visit are spread all throughout Greece. Um, obviously, the sites, many of the sites are, are go all the way back to the Paleolithic times. But essentially what we did is we traveled from the north end of Greece, Thessaloniki, and all the way down to the island of Crete. The island of Crete was an extension trip. But uh, these sites, so we really, the students did get to see pretty much, except for the islands, pretty much the uh, full extent of modern Greece. Now, are any of these more familiar sites? I mean, do they start turning into the Wisconsin Dells or something? I mean, with I mean, were there real tourist attractions and the, and sort of all the trappings that come with with being a big 
tourist site, or, 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 or is, does it seem a little more pure and pristine than that? In, in the major cities, there's a lot of traffic, both from tourists and uh, students, Greek students coming and that sort of thing. This is one of the big advantages of traveling in January, though, that the, the tourist traffic is much lighter. Mm. And even in the big cities, even uh, on the Acropolis, even at the Parthenon, if you go at the right time of day, you can basically have it all to yourself. Whereas if you go in the summer, it's just mobbed and very difficult to get a clean picture of Elizabeth by the Parthenon or anything, anybody else because there's so many, so many people flocking around. The, just to go back to the earlier question about where these sites are, I think it's fair to say that anywhere you dig in Greece, you're liable to find ancient remains. And in fact, this is an incredible problem in some ways for the society because if you want to build a new building, uh, you have to get special permits. And if you run into any remains in the process, you have, you're supposed to notify the Antiquities Authority who can come in and do what they call an emergency excavation to try to find out what's there. And we notice this even as we're driving through the countryside alongside the, the highway, there will be small digs set up where they've found something and they're trying to uncover exactly what it was before, the, before it gets paved over mm. uh, in the next uh, highway extension. Wow. That brings to mind an uh, interview I did uh, last year with uh, someone who worked at a museum in Norway, in Bergen, Norway, I think. And uh, she talked about the laws in Norway which say that every time you build anything, you must, it must be archaeologically searched first. It's Absolutely. not even a matter of if you stumble on something accidentally Absolutely. in the process of building. And, and uh, it's interesting, that, that mentality, which uh, it's hard to imagine the United States, for instance, approaching expansion and building in that that same way, who knows what we're paving over. Sure. That was a real issue when they were building the subway. Um, Athens, of course, has, has spent um, a lot of money investing in a, a subway system uh, because they're going to be hosting the 2004 Olympics. And uh, when we were there uh, the previous year, they had just inaugurated it. Uh, they just sort of had a public celebration uh, opening it up, but it was really, it wasn't until this year that we were able to usually use the subway. The problem wasn't the tunnel because the tunnel's right under all, it's right through bedrock, it's under the um, actual um, sites, you know, the, the many different levels of the Greek, the Roman, you know, the Byzantine, Turkish levels. But the problem was building the subway stations, going down to it. And they mm. came up with an ingenious, I think, I think it's a, rem, uh, a very ingenious way of keeping the spirit of, of the subway, showing the connection between the ancient city and the modern city, where they actually have stratigraphy, that is, they show the different levels, so they'll have a display. And they also have um, display cases where they have some of the artifacts that were found um, when they were building the subway station. So people actually, the Greeks do stop, they look at them, and they see what was actually found there, and they can compare it then to the stratigraphy. Oh, this was a Roman cemetery, and then underneath the Roman cemetery there was this. And, and so the different subway stations have, have uh, wonderful maps, explanations, and recreations as well as original artifacts. So that sort of really brings together the both the, uh, the, the subway system is absolutely marvelous. It's, it's, it's very, very modern. And to see the contrast with that and uh, the ancient levels is, is fascinating. Wow. Yeah, I suppose if, if you're visiting some of these sites in the midst of, of, of a city like Athens and you're really seeing the juxtaposition of old and new in some, in some interesting ways, how Western is a city like Athens? Let's ask our students first of all. I mean, do you see golden arches in Athens, for instance? There are. There's, <clears throat> there's like, uh, there's fast food, there's pizza, there's, uh, you know, all of the kind of consumer 
oriented products like jeans and clothes and shoes and you know there's shopping districts and stuff like that that you'd expect to find here mm -hmm. uh, things as far as like jeans they're like the clothes are way like a lot more expensive than they than they are here over there and there there'd be like some real trendy areas and they'll sell stuff here that we would just you know run out quick to the store and pick them up like a pair of Levi's or something hmm how much English did you uh, encounter, both in smaller villages uh, and, and, in, and in cities like Athens? Um, I was actually very impressed by the Grecians' um, zeal for wanting to speak English all of the time, even though oftentimes that hindered our need to speak Greek, which... Mm. <laughs> Interesting. You were, you, were, you were hoping to be able to speak Greek, and they were maybe hoping for the chance to speak English. Well, it's kind of um, amusing because Dan and Chris equipped us with a few um, essential phrases like please and thank you and um, numbers, so we had a sense of how much things would cost or things like that. But going into a lot of the shops, what would often happen is they would be owned by... Um, the older generation by parents or something and their and their children would actually be the people walking around the store helping the customers but the the older people would always sit behind the cash register so if you could say please or thank you they would just smile from ear to ear and then they would want to engage in this big long conversation not understanding that you know your F. Caristo, which means thank you, is the extent of what we knew. <laughs> That's about as far as you can get. <laughs> but they appreciated the effort, nonetheless. Yeah. We're speaking with uh, four Carthaginians who uh, visited Greece during January. Two uh, members of the faculty, Chris Renau and Dan Showalter, and two students, Elizabeth Hack and Jerry Munson. And it sounds like, it sounds like quite a trip. Um, the, the, the ancient sites that you visited, um, first of all, do they vary in terms of their level of accessibility? I mean, can you just walk into them? Do you pay an admission fee? Does it depend on uh, how popular the site is? Uh, explain that a bit. The sites that are available to the public are all fenced, and there is a gate and an, an admission uh, ticket booth that you need to go past. <laughs> we are fortunate in that the Greek government allows student groups to apply for a special permit that basically waives the admission fee on the site. So the students actually saved a considerable amount because we were able to do that. But normally there would be a fee uh, to enter. They do have to pay guards uh, to attend the sites and to keep them up and maintain them in facilities, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a typical site, I mean, something like the, like the Acropolis or something, when you're walking through that, can you just walk through wherever you want to go? No, uh, you can't. Um, actually, a lot of the buildings on the Acropolis have long since are no longer accessible. For instance, the Parthenon. Uh, the first time I visited the Parthenon was 1976, and even at that time they had closed off tours into the interior of the Parthenon uh, because there are scoring lines there for the, you know, the architects. So when people do measuring and study of the temples, if you have all this traffic, people wearing away those lines, you lose an important bit of information. Hmm. And so what they have now, what the, um, what the Greek Archaeological Service has is sort of create a sort of a cement path. So you can go around the Parthenon, and you can go, say, around the, um, the Erechtheion, which is, um, which is a very interesting uh, building in and of itself. And other buildings are, are not accessible at this present time because they're under, uh, re they're under restoration and reconstruction. 
So for uh, the Parthenon, they're still restoring the Parthenon, and now they've moved also to the Temple of Athena Nike, Temple of Athena of, of Victory. And that's all under scaffolding, and so that's no longer accessible. But that doesn't mean you can't get a sense or an appreciation of the Acropolis. They've made it so that you can, you know, they have plans, you can really see what you're looking at. And, of course, they have a very fine, small Acropolis museum on the summit of the Acropolis. Mm-hmm. And guides that take you around, or did you kind of serve that function? It depended on where we were. When we were in Athens, we did our own guiding. And when we went out on the, on the travels from Athens, we had a guide with us that was provided by Dimitri. And uh, she, uh, Maria, was a, a wonderful guide and very helpful. We, we, we kind of shared with her the duties on site in terms of talking about the important features and, and in a way, learned from one another in, in, in that regard. And then she helped a lot with the arrangements uh, off the sites, the hotels, the dinners, that kind of thing. So it was great to have, have her along. Mm-hmm. She, she made it sound like this was uh, physically arduous. I mean, are we talking about a lot of walking just to get to some of these places? Or once you get there, are these... Are these sites quite expansive, and are you covering a lot of ground? Well, there's there's a difference of opinion on that, Greg, and I'll I'll state my opinion, and then you can <laughs> ask the students. Uh, the there there is quite a bit of walking, but I think I think it's good for us. I think it's good for us to have to move around, uh, and it, it practically uh, there's just no way in a in a big city like Athens with all the traffic. There's no way you would take a car or or a bus around Athens. It's just much quicker hmm. to if if you know the streets and if you know where you're going to to walk. This means that you have some long days and you have some long walks. But I think it's I think it's reasonable. And actually, as the trip went on. The days where we did a lot of walking became less and less because we did more travel on the bus. We had the bus, so if we needed to go to a site nearby, we would take the bus. There was one point toward the end where we had a short distance between two sites, and I I insisted that we walk, and there was great clamor about how terrible that was, but I, <laughs> it was downhill the whole way, so I didn't really feel like it was a, an awful torture. Am I seen Oh. <laughs> Now, as, we, as, as you walk through these sites, did they start to all look the same? Because, I, I mean, I, I asked that, I mean, as a complete, uh, in, in complete ignorance of a lot of the finer details, but you look at a lot of the pictures, and they appear at first glance to the unaided eye to, to look like, like they're all the same, pretty, essentially all the same. Are you able to look at certain details that really distinguish uh, one from another? And I'm looking at the students for a good answer here. Um, we learned we learned a lot about the architecture actually, and uh, just kind of what period it was from. We studied Doric and Ionic and different characteristics thereof, especially like in the columns and stuff like that, and the capitals, which are the the stones on the top of the columns. Um, I guess to address kind of the first part of that question, uh, like when we first got there, everyone was kind of ruin happy so to speak and taking pictures <laughs> taking all the pictures they possibly can and by the of end every room yeah of everything they can and then by the end of the trip it's just kind of like oh there's another column <laughs> you know it's just you really you kind of get callous which is unfortunate and you can kind of see why uh the the greeks that you know live and work around these things you know don't really pay much attention to them when you get there they're so spectacular but when you see them constantly it's just kind of like you get used to it right well i wonder too some of these sites uh, i wonder how much is there i mean how how many details are are left for for you to be able to see because some some are more ruined ruins than others right 
That depends very much on, on the particular site and what and, and the post classical um, and the post classical period. What have it is what happened to the site um, and after the um, after the fall of the of the of Roman Empire in the West. A lot of sites were destroyed by earthquakes. Some mm. were covered by rivers, which was fortuitous for some because what it did was it actually preserved a lot of things that otherwise would not have been preserved. If you're talking about a city like Athens, well, it's a living, it's been a living city since the Neolithic time, so there's been successive layers of occupation, and what people tend to do is, particularly in the um, post-classical period, is you use the stone from the old buildings for your homes. When I excavated in the Agora in Athens, that was the preferred method to use the foundations of the old buildings and you would take the walls down and you would break those blocks up and you would use them to create the walls of your Byzantine home. And so, wow. uh, so therefore what has happened, so as the ancient city gets to be reincorporated in successive, you know, uh, layers um, and time periods uh, in Athens. And so it all depends on the particular site. Some sites became malarial, and so therefore people didn't live, you know, um, there. Olympia is an interesting site, the, the home of the uh, ancient Olympic Games, because it was actually, there was earthquakes, and then um, there was a decree where all the pagan sanctuaries had to be closed, so that effectively put an end to historical Olympia. And then the rivers changed course. There are two rivers that flow by. They changed course, and they covered the whole site, most of the site with sand. So a lot of original sculptures that we otherwise would not have survived because of that. Mm. However, when you go there, you have to do a lot of restoration in your mind. Unlike in Athens, where they're, they've been more particular about trying to restore the buildings as much as possible so you get a sense of what they originally looked like. And so there's always that play with how much do you restore. So some places you're just looking at, I felt sorry for you know, the students because they're looking at foundations. Mm. In other places you actually see really a whole, a, pretty much a whole building. And um, Wow. Now, where does the, the topic of myth, drama, and religion come in when you visit some of these sites? What kinds of things are you showing your students? What, I guess I'm asking, what is the benefit of being there as opposed to being in a comfortable classroom on the campus of Carthage College and throwing pictures up on the screen. Well, I think what, what Chris mentioned at the beginning is very important, that actually being there and seeing the connection between the Theater of Dionysus, which is on the south slope of the Acropolis, and sanctuaries uh, to various gods very close to the theater and the temple of Dionysus itself just adjacent to the theater you get a very good sense of the integration of ancient life that myth drama religion are really part of a whole and you could throw politics uh, and society other aspects of society in there as well uh, where the people who lived in Athens participated in all aspects of these events uh, Depending on their class, they might have access to certain things and not to others. But in general, uh, the festivals were a time that brought together uh, worship of the gods, uh, dramatic presentations, and in many ways all of those are reenactments of some of the mythological origins, the stories uh, that the Greeks considered to be the, the foundation of their civilization. Hmm. Do you consider that to be profoundly different from our own culture? I mean, at least on the surface, that seems very different from oh, yeah, the way we approach our, our festive days, whatever they may be. Well, when we talk about, uh, I talk more about uh, Roman religion in my classes, but it's, I think it's very important for us to recognize that the, the separation of church and state, for instance, which we hold to 
theoretically at least, so highly in this country, uh, is just not a part, wouldn't even have occurred to the ancient Roman mind. The emperor was the chief priest of Roman religion, and uh, the uh, generals didn't do anything without checking the omens with the priests in the temples. Uh, so, I mean, the, 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 everything is connected in a, in a way that I think we don't have in our society today. And so to understand what's going on in the Roman world, or if you're studying early Christianity, for instance, which is uh, also my area, you really need to see that as, as, as a whole rather than as sort of disparate activities that are people, you know, the relig- if you're going to be religious, you go over here on a certain day and you're mm-hmm. religious, and the rest of your life you're living the regular political life. That, that just doesn't happen. It's just integrated in uh-huh. a, on a whole different level. Oh, yeah. yeah. In fact, the title of the course, and you think about the title of the course, we separate them into different disciplines. And that would have been inconceivable to the ancient mind. In mean, your course, myth, course, drama, and, and religion. religion, right? Taking three and, different departments. You know, <laughs> right? And they really sort of, you know, those are, the people actually specialize in those three particular areas nowadays. Whereas with the uh, with the ancient Greeks and the Romans, the, this this kind of separation would have been obviously very very um, artificial because part of the celebration in the theaters was in honor of the particular god or goddess of the sanctuary. So performance was an important aspect. Of, of religious worship in ancient times and what we were trying to do is to show how you know how they're all brought together and and, and where you can see it physically the interrelationship at a site because a lot of sites particularly sanctuary sites such as delphi you'll have the temple you'll you know you'll have a sacred way going up to the temple you'll have the temple to the uh, to apollo there for instance then you have a theater above and then above that you have a stadium so in the stadium they would have athletic competitions down below they would have the musical contests and the theatrical uh, competitions you know and of course the place of worship you know the focus of the worship was the the temple itself but actually there's performance involved in ritual and so you see that sort of spilled over into the festivities um, wow that really is in, an intriguing thought isn't it to think about different aspects of life being so connected it would be like here in america if you build a huge sports stadium and and attached to it would be a marvelous concert hall and mm-hmm. and and to, to imagine a society where you would think nothing of incorporating both of those into your life and uh, yeah you can actually add another dimension if you want to if you talk about a site like Epidaurus which is in the Peloponnesus uh, in the southern part of Greece you also can add the healing uh, medical dimension as well mm. uh, Epidaurus is the place of probably the best preserved Greek theater and there were famous uh, dramatic presentations that took place there and in fact they still use the theater for uh, productions today but there was also this very important uh, sanctuary to Asclepius at Epidaurus just down the hill from the theater basically and people came from all over to be healed in the sanctuary uh, by the god and the the sort of priests slash doctors of Asclepius and when you mentioned that with the concert hall, it, it occurred to me that as we were walking through the sanctuary on the way to the Temple of Asclepius, we went by uh, an Odeon, which is a Roman concert hall, which was built right in the center of this sacred region to Asclepius. And that provided, uh, as, as you say, a, a, all, met the need, so many different needs of people all in a very small kind of compact location. And all a part, it was all understood as a part of what it meant to be a whole person. Uh, in terms of health, in terms of music, drama, all, all of those things. Mm. I, I, this is our intent in doing this. You should ask the students whether it came through or not. I, I'm always worried that, you know, the theory is one thing. Mm-hmm. 
Well, it's kind of funny that Dan should mention that because one of the things that we have to do at Carthage is called the Junior Symposium, which is the integration of three courses. And my Junior Symposium is actually going to be on Greek culture, and it's going to tie in um, religious aspects that we picked up on the trip, architecture, and just um, kind of the overall Greek persona, I guess, if you will. But when we went to these places, it was it was easy to see how, you know, theater was not just a time to go to, to a play. It, w- it was a time to worship the god Dionysus. And just this whole notion of being balanced and well-rounded and seeing the same themes from site to site, it was really interesting. Mm-hmm. One of the things you mentioned before we went on the air was you talked about Jerry giving a nice presentation at Delphi. Um, so what was that about? I mean, were students assigned to do that at different points in the trip? It t- um, what we did was uh, uh, Dan and I came up with a list of topics that reflected the, the, the uh, theme of the course or the themes of the course, and each student signed up for um, a, a, a place or a topic he or she wanted to do. And Jared decided to pick Delphi, which is very ambitious uh, because it's very difficult if you have never been to the site to actually take people around uh, because you can show slides, you can give them a sense, but when you're there, it's very, very, the, not only is the feeling very different, it's just disorienting yourself. And uh, Jared picked um, the site of Delphi, uh, which has been well excavated, and there are lots of, room, lots of remains there. And he just took us right through. Very nice plan. He took us through, um, showing us the most important aspects um, of it. In fact, he was complimented very highly by Maria, um, our guide who was uh, with us. And that is something that's very, very difficult uh, to have students do is do site, do site reports because they've never been there. Yeah. They l- How did you manage to do that? Um, <clears throat> a lot of library books, actually. But uh, uh-huh. it, it did, having to present on site and having to kind of, it was fun to try to kind of be a tour guide, so to speak, but it really made you realize uh, the significance of being there and, and how pictures just don't do it justice. Learning in the classroom is nothing compared to actually standing there and just looking around you and thinking about, you know, all of the people that have passed by that very spot over the last, you know, 3,000 years. And you see the Parthenon as big as day. And, I mean, it's, it's humongous. And then you go to other places, and it was kind of disheartening because all that was left was, as Chris said, foundations, and it was it was hard to figure out how big things were. But I think one of the most impressive things we saw was the remains of one of the seven wonders of the world, which was the Temple to Zeus, and of course the statue was the one of the wonders, and that was that's long since gone and melted away, probably five times over. But um, the the columns were left and they had actually toppled over in an earthquake and the columns are put together by drums and they had all fallen apart and it looked like these tinker toys laying on the <laughs> ground but they were absolutely humongous and I think that really gave people an idea of how big and monstrous this thing was assembled and standing upright. Wow. Well, and it must be so frustrating. I've, I've never really much visited ruins. Um, I saw some, oddly enough, at one of the big museums in uh, Vienna the last time I was there. And, um, and I was really struck by you know, some of these big display rooms where they 
have on display just little fragments of columns and you just among other things you feel this abiding sense of frustration at, at what is lost mm -hmm. uh, and of course there's no way to turn back the clock I, I suppose if archaeology is your business you have to deal with that frustration all the time absolutely it's I mean there, there's a, there are pluses and minuses on, on the one hand you're grateful for what's left mm. because it does give you some insight and some clues there is always the desire for more. There's always the desire for, for more information. But again, I'll go back to my puzzle analogy from earlier on. You're, you're trying to put together the pieces that survive in a way that gives you a sense of uh, what was there. So even if you have a few columns standing, or even if you have the, a clear outline of the, the platform of a temple, I think you can get a sense of scale from it. Uh, one of the real treats I had this trip was I got to visit two sanctuaries or two sites that I hadn't been to before. Mm. And that was... Very exciting. We went to this uh, sanctuary of Artemis at Verona uh, and saw the remains. The temple is destroyed there, but there's a very nice uh, portico that survives the, the surrounding uh, Temenos area of the, of the temple and, and some rooms that we kind of investigated. And, and I think everybody got into looking at, at how those were laid out and trying to figure out the function of those. And then we also stopped at uh, Nemea, on, again, in the Peloponnesus, and that was the first time I had been there, and there were some very interesting uh, remains of the temple. And then they also had excavated fairly recently a new bath, uh, a bath complex there that gave you a real nice sense of the uh, bathing as part of the uh, ancient experience as well. So even if you just have the fragments, sometimes you can piece those together and, and uh, learn quite a lot from them. Mm -hmm. And things are still being found. Oh, yes. being excavated. oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's an exciting prospect right there. Absolutely. And, and I mean, to a certain extent, the, our ability to find things is only limited by our time and our money, mm. uh, what we can devote to it. So in a, in a government like Greece, I don't know what their budget for archaeology is, but I know most of it is spent on these kinds of rescue excavations when somebody wants to build something. And part of the problem is once you've excavated a site, you have to maintain it. And that, yeah. that involves a great deal of money and time. Dan mentioned earlier the guards at the site, because uh, part of the problem are antiquities that are, smug that are smuggled out. In fact, when we were there, we saw the news of um, items that had been stolen from the Corinth Museum. Mm. Corinth was a major port city um, that um, is in the little strip of land that separates you know, the area of Athens from the southern part um, of Greece, the Peloponnesus. And we saw, we heard about the return that after, uh, what, nine, ten years, they're finally being returned. And it was a significant number. And so that is a constant problem. So once you excavate a site, you have to maintain it. Mm. So you're not just digging a hole. So you're it's not just digging right. a hole and just saying, okay, we've done that, found that, move on. And not only that, what people tend to do is as, our, as the excavation techniques become more refined and science is brought to bear, uh, in archaeology, you have to revisit the sites and you have to rethink exactly what was discovered there. Mm -hmm. So it's a constant process, and I think that that is uh, something that we always have to keep in mind. It's not a one-shot or one-time deal. Well, one fun example of that was when we were in Thessaloniki in the north at the, at the beginning of the trip. We had a full morning of activity, and then a few brave souls uh, were willing <laughs> to go on an optional visit that afternoon to the area of the forum or the, the market area, or not, not market's the wrong term, but the, the, uh, the forum of, of ancient Thessaloniki. In the center of the city. In the center of the city. And there have, there's been excavation there for a very long time. There's a, a small Odeon, again, this kind of uh, concert hall. 
and a, a long stoa that that has been there for a long time and, they, and it's it's built on a hillside so there's real interesting art, um, engineering involved in lay, laying out a flat forum on the on the side of a hill so there's these large uh, what they call cryptoporticus underneath that supports the platform as well but we went uh, and walked by the forum and uh, there was a guard in there and, and Maria our guide was able after some communication and uh, several phone calls to convince the guard to let us come in and, and walk around in the farm because it was not an, an open site. Mm. And he not only let us do that, but he also took us into an area where there were brand new excavations. And they had excavated a circular room with little individual uh, bath installations all around the room, I mean, probably 20, 25 of them. And he let us go in and walk around and sit in these little baths spots. Oh my word. And I might lose I might lose him his job here. I better be careful. But, uh, he was uh, very generous with his time and with, with letting us do this. It was really a treat. Uh, an area that probably won't be open to the public for several years I would guess. But we got to sort of see firsthand what was going on in there. It was a fascinating time. Wow. Are any of the ruins underground? I visited ruins in Salzburg where you actually walked into a little oh. shed and then you took metal mm-hmm. stairs down and, and we could see uh, ruins from Roman times. I mean, just you know, tile flooring and mm-hmm. so on. But a uh, couple of places where that's the case. Uh, uh, Chris already mentioned in the subway, uh, in the subway reconstructions, the stations that uh, they sort of have that. There's also a fascinating uh, tomb complex in the north. Uh, where the Macedonian uh, kings are buried, and, and the Greek archaeologists believe, or many of them believe, that Philip II, the father of Alexander the Great, is actually buried in this uh, this tomb complex at Vergina. And there they've built a great museum, sort of recreating the mound that was the ancient tomb. And you go in, and it's completely dark, except for the display cases, and they actually have the tombs uh, behind glass, but they're, they're these huge... Uh, uh, sort of like they look like temple fronts and then the tombs uh, lay in behind and then they also have displayed all the riches that were found in the tombs most of these were not robbed in antiquity hmm. and so you have some great uh, gold uh, silver um, wow. uh, boxes and, and couches and, and a, uh, just an amazing array of uh, material that was found in the area so that that's that's one example neat uh, when the students were done with this trip did they have to provide you with a 40-page research paper or anything, or in what way did you want this experience to culminate, or was it really just the experience of, of being there and seeing it? No, no, no. At Carthage, there's no such thing as the experience of just being there. <laughs> we want the academic process to be uh, as complete as possible, and we, we again, it's a, it's a balancing act, because they're busy, we're keeping them on the run, but yet we want them to have something that they can uh, hang on to afterwards that, for, the, for the academic work that they did. So they all kept a journal, which we checked on a couple times through the trip, and I think that's mostly for them, because in in years to come, when they want to look back on this trip, they're going to have a record of pretty much what they did every day, and I think that'll be real exciting. I I have a similar trip, a similar journal from a trip I took in in 1979 when I was in college, and and that really still is, is important for me. And then they all wrote a paper reflecting on their project, what they learned from presenting, uh, from being on the site, from from other people's. Uh, 
project. And then we kept stressing the idea that we were looking for connections mm. uh, as they went around, and they were supposed to find those in their papers as well. Not quite 40 pages, but a substantial <laughs> paper. Right. We, we even had classes, too. Some of the hotels are very nice, provide a room, and we try to pull some things together because it's difficult when you're going from place to place to place. And sometimes you're really jumping time periods. You want to want to stop and reflect, okay, what have we seen? How is this all interrelated? And so we uh, we had um, we had one class we had different classes one focused on religion another on the actual ancient playwrights and actually when we were at Epidaurus and I thought this was a lot of fun we actually had students perform part of Oedipus the King mm-hmm. and the encounter between Tiresias um, and Oedipus and so in the actual ancient theater um, at Epidaurus. Wow, I suppose one of the challenges for you is that you had this interesting mix of of, of students, and really the only thing they probably had in in, in common was varying degrees of, of interest and experience with with uh, with some of this, and so that was a challenge for you then. It, I think, it provides an opportunity. Uh, but it is challenging in the sense that you're speaking to people with different levels uh, levels of experience and knowledge. But I think everybody was willing. We had some some basic texts that we use, in, including a really uh, helpful historical atlas, that people could get the background and have some of the some of the basic ideas in place before we got to the site. And then we could try to take them around and and work through the key features as we were going along. Yeah. One thing we should emphasize is we didn't um, we didn't ignore modern Greek culture. I mean, it's one thing to go to places to visit the ancient sites, but still reflect on the contemporary culture of the area. And uh, there's a very vibrant, you know, um, um, nightlife, city life uh, in Athens. And Dan, for instance, went to a play of uh, William Shakespeare's Antony and uh, Cleopatra, uh, done in modern Greek. Mm. So, uh, so the and he invited students and other anyone who wanted to go along uh, with him and uh, for this experience. Wow, I don't know. That sounds interesting. It also sounds like a long night if every word is spoken in Greek. Everyone was, but it was it was a fascinating time. I it bet. really was. I, I mean, I know enough Greek that I could recognize things as we were going along, but a lot of the dialogue was missing. But the actors put so much into the roles that. It was obvious what was going on. There was never any question. Yeah. What's Greek food like? <laughs> um, I think I had better luck with the Greek food than Jer did. Um, it's it's different, but it's it's good. It was a lot of chicken and a lot of pork and a lot of lamb, seasoned various ways. Not terribly spicy, just kind of flavorful. A lot of French fries, French fries on everything, not next to it. Oh, interesting. Um, some of the favorite things we had on the trip, a lot of the people on the trip like Greek salad. Um, not everyone was as fond of the feta cheese as others were, but mm-hmm. some people really enjoyed that. Tzatziki was a favorite kind of universal condiment in Greece. It's um, mm. a yogurt base sauce mixed with garlic and cucumber. Whoa. And and it's good to put on bread or on your french fries or with chicken or omelets. It's, you know, ketchup's not everywhere, so you have to kind of adapt. And then um, I think our very favorite thing was a souvlaki stand in Athens. And souvlaki is um, grilled chicken or pork or lamb that's put on pita bread, and then there are onions and tzatziki and french fries kind of all wrapped together and you can get variations on the souvlaki depending on where you go but 
Um, that was kind of our favorite thing to eat, I mm. think. And cheap, too. And Yeah, and the food is, is cheap, unless you are looking at getting things like um, Coca-Cola or just kind of things that they probably import from the States. Mm, porterhouse steaks are not cheap. <laughs> um, we didn't eat a lot of beef in okay. Europe. We thought that might not be so wise. Right. Well, Jerry, what was your bad luck with food? Well, I wasn't really bad. Like I'm just a picky eater, but <laughs> but I did. You did get used to them serving bread with uh, everything, and just different kinds of bread. It was really kind of interesting because it was the minute you could eat it all, there was another loaf right mm. there. So yeah, but otherwise it wasn't the food you got used to in Owatonna, Minnesota. Right. <laughs> Understood. Chris, you uh, remarked uh, as we were talking earlier about the fact that the. Uh, Olympic Games are are looming in the in the uh, relatively near future for uh, the nation of Greece. Uh, are they ready for them? Well, the Greeks themselves would say no. And there's been while we were there, it was very interesting to read um, the uh, the newspapers. And here I'm talking about the English translation of of the Athen News about each ministry blaming the other hmm. for their lack of preparedness. Because um, one of the problems is they have this brand new airport that's been built by a German contractor, but the road to it isn't finished. And this new airport is so far out uh, from the center of Athens, way out, we would say the boonies, um, that, that it just boggles the mind. We had a hard time the day we went to Brauern or Verona. Uh, when we went there, the traffic was incredible, and to think that this road, and going by the airport, and to see that this road is not yet finished, and if we're having traffic now, what is it going to be like in 2004? On one hand, the Greeks are very, very proud. The subway was part of that project, uh, because to get people from into the center of Athens, you know, but they're not going to have the subway all the way to the airport by the time of the Olympic Games. Part of it's because of the ancient remains, um, and... Um, but you have all these different people trying to put the elements of, of creating all the infrastructure um, in Greece to, to make things, do, to, to get everybody ready. But I can imagine that it is going to be very, very probably very, very chaotic. Nonetheless, I think the Greeks have a marvelous way of adapting to any situation. And uh, so while they themselves may be arguing back and forth and casting blame, um, I think that um, it's you know, you're going to have problems that you would have with any heavily populated um, urban area. I'm just amazed at how much cleaner the air is around Athens than when I first started there. So they definitely have made progress. But are they ready now? No. Even they themselves do. No. <laughs> I think a lot of Greeks are planning to be out of Athens or maybe right. out of the country when the Olympics mm. take place. And, and that will help just in terms of sheer numbers and traffic and those kinds of things. Wow, that's going to be interesting. Dan, we just have a minute or so for you to uh, tell people about your little adventure at the very end of the trip. Well, I, I started having some uh, pain uh, in the right side of my abdomen for the last three or four days of the trip when we were actually on Crete. And I tried to ignore it at first, but eventually it got to the point where I started to feel like it might be my appendix. Uh, we have uh, a long and involved story that I can't tell in a minute about seeking out medical care the, the night before we were scheduled to leave and Chris was kind enough to go with me and to, uh, to, to try to find uh, a doctor. Eventually a doctor came to the hotel and examined me and said it was appendicitis. It was, it was interesting because he uh, took about a minute and a half to uh, say that I had appendicitis but he, he concluded it wasn't acute 
and that I probably could make it home, which is what I wanted to hear. Mm. I didn't necessarily want to go through surgery in, in a foreign country where it, it would have, the whole process would have been much more complicated, starting with insurance and working right, down. Right, right. Uh, so the next morning, we got on the plane. We flew to Frankfurt. I felt pretty good in Frankfurt, so we went ahead and made the last leg, the nine hours, uh, back to Chicago, and got home around uh, 2 in the afternoon uh, to, to O'Hare, by the time we got back to Racine, it was about 4 o'clock. I, I went to the emergency room at 5 that afternoon and had my appendix out at 12.30 the next morning. So the, I was in the, in the emergency room here. They didn't actually believe it was appendicitis. <laughs> well, the, the symptoms were very atypical. I had, wow. you know, it had been going on for so long, and I didn't have a fever, and I didn't have a white count, uh, elevated white count. So they weren't convinced, and finally they did a, a CT scan and, and determined that it was appendicitis, and then they put me right in to the, uh, to the OR, and, and it was gone. So that was a month ago today, actually. So wow. Kind of An interesting fun. adventure. So it was. A little too much walking, uh, right? <laughs> oh, no, not enough. It may have been too much Greek food. I'm not sure what uh, uh, really brought it on. Well, at any rate, we're, we're, we're glad that uh, that particular chapter of the story has a, has, a, has a happy ending. Well, it sounds like this was quite the memorable trip for all of you. Um, for our two students, to, do you hope that someday you'll be able to go back? Yeah, I think so. I thought that it was a great time. I thought some of my favorite times were like after after uh, the day's festivities were over and we could go back and kind of relax for a while in the hotel in uh, Athens and then go out at night and walk to the uh, Areopagus, which is just adjacent to the Acropolis, and just sit there at night for, you know, an hour or two and just look over the uh, the lights of the modern city of Athens with the Acropolis all lit up right behind. It was just amazing to realize just where, you know, where I was sitting. Hmm. Elizabeth? Well, there's kind of two parts to that. Um, when we were on the Acropolis and other places, you know, the Parthenon was covered in scaffolding, and it kind of, you know, took some of the romantic quality of that away. <laughs> and and some of us were discussing that although it's it would be nice to see more of these sites put back together, half of their charm is seeing them broken apart. And... Um, I, I very much would like to go back someday. While we were there, there was this overwhelming sense of history everywhere we went. It was kind of like traversing across these unfaded footprints throughout history that are never going to be, you know, lost in the dust. And I think it would be fun to go back and see, you know, how that feels 20 years from now and, you know, maybe take my own children with me and kind of watch them be as excited as I was the first time that I saw it. Right, very much so. Will there be a trip to Greece next January? Well, actually, um, I'm thinking of developing a trip to Italy. Now mm -hmm. that we have Greece down, um, I don't know, um, Dan and I are talking about this. Um, he's off next J term. And um, as Director of Heritage, I usually I don't have um, the time, but I'm thinking of developing a, a trip to Italy mm. for our students. Um, I have to admit, I've enjoyed both times we've gone. It, it is a tremendous amount of work, but I just, in, um, the sheer joy of seeing, um, you know, the reaction of students and the engagement. And, 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 and when I was a student, I had that, a similar experience and how much I gained from that and just the idea of passing that on to another generation. So there is probably, there may be a trip to Italy next January. Mm. Well, we'll look forward to hearing all about that then. Mm -hmm. We're also trying to develop a, a semester in the Mediterranean that would take in Italy, Greece, Turkey, perhaps Israel. Wow. Perhaps in fall of 2002. Yeah. Well, we'll watch all those uh, 
developments with, with great interest. And we're certainly glad that you could join us on the morning show today to talk about this memorable trip. We appreciate your time. Thanks very Thank much, you. Greg. Thanks. It's a pleasure. Chris Renau and uh, Dan Showalter from the faculty of Carthage College and students Elizabeth Hack and Jerry Monson joining us as well. We thank all of you for your time.